Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we have part one of our tribute to producer, songwriter, and musician Adam Schlesinger. He's got all kinds of time. He's got all kinds of time. All kinds of time. He's got all kinds of time. All kinds of time. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special episode of the Rhino Podcast. Today, I'm joined by executive producer John Hughes. Hi, John. Hi, Rich. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. And everybody is dealing with the same thing right now, and we've all lost people we know. And in our case, in the Rhino family, we lost somebody very special, Adam Schlesinger, whose work is well known by everybody, maybe if you know it or not. Isn't that right, John? I mean, he's he's just done so much in his life. Yeah, I mean, you've got everything from Fountains of Wayne, obviously, his work as the musical supervisor on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which, you know, he wrote over 150 songs with his uh, songwriting partners wow. there. Yeah, I mean, just a massive task. A uh, personal favorite of mine, his work with uh, uh, his other band, Ivy, really uh, moody, evocative indie rock. And, you know, he was a, a close friend of mine. We met doing the Monkees two albums, Good Times and Christmas Party. We hired him for that as a producer. and Those it, albums are fantastic. Yeah, and it's just a, a testament to his talent and, and the Monkees as well. And we just kind of connected instantly on a personal level and kept up a relationship, a friendship since then. And this COVID-19 was just this kind of thing like, oh, wow, this is weird and strange. And then to find out a friend of mine passed away from it was a real a real gut punch. It was, it was, it's tough. I still don't think he's gone. I keep looking at my phone waiting to get a text back from him and that I just know my heart's not coming. So you know, the idea I had was we have so many mutual friends. We have so many people he's worked with around the industry and we can't get together. We can't celebrate him in any way. So the idea was, Hey, you know, I've, I've got you in this podcast. This is the closest we can get to get everybody in a room and just share memories of Adam. And that's where the, the genesis of this came from. John has conducted interviews with a multitude of Adam's friends and family and coworkers and we have so much material and memories and music to share with you that we can't fit it into one episode. So this is going to be the first of a two-part series on Adam's life work. 
number one, everybody loved him. I mean, even if they disagreed about the work, and he could be a little stubborn when he wanted things his way. At Opinionated. The, yeah, but that's why he was good at what he did, because he knew what he wanted. He had many years experience getting to that point to where he knew what he wanted. He heard it in his head. And if it didn't match that vision, you know, he was open to moving, but he would stand his ground a bit. And I got to tell you, my personal experience, nine times out of 10, the guy was right. That's one of the hallmarks of a great producer, isn't it? Yes, for sure. Yeah. He never let it get it personal. So you'll hear that as well. Uh, just again, my personal experience, we would have some disagreements. I would say right knock down, drag out fights over things. And I'd be in my car driving home from the studio like Adam Schlesinger. And I would get home and I'd look at my phone and there'd be a text. Hey, we going for barbecue? Like, I'm mad at you. Don't make me not mad at you right now. And I couldn't stay mad at him. <laughs> well, see, it wasn't a personal thing for him. It was just work. 100% about the work. And, and I miss him very much. I love the guy. Well, we're going to do this in chronological order. It just seemed to make most sense since there's so much to go through. For me and Rich, it kind of made sense just to start at the start. Uh, I started to be yeah, yeah, with exactly. childhood friends and, and just kind of work through his life that way. Let's get going. Who do we have first on this, John? We're going to start with two of his lifelong friends. And by lifelong, I mean almost from birth, Jonathan Small and Jeremy Freeman. Jeremy lives in Japan now, and you'll hear some great reminiscences from him. But we'll start with Jonathan Small. Jonathan is a friend of Adam's that's known him almost since birth, and he is a journalist and the host of the podcast Right About Now, right as in W-R-I-T-E, and I really appreciate both of them taking their time to speak with us. I knew Adam since the time I was three months old. Our parents, what? yeah, our parents went to Williams College together. My dad went to Williams College with, with, uh, with, with Steve Schlesinger, who's Adam's father. And um, they moved to New York City after college. And we lived in basically in the same Upper West Side neighborhood and just became friends that way. And, you know, I, I had a lot of friends, I guess, when I was a baby. But Adam and our friendship, it, it lasted, you know, 52 years. It just never, it never ended. <laughs> Wow. So, yeah. so you went to school together too, or it just kind well, of- we went, so we went to nursery school. We, they called it nursery school back then together in the Upper West side road of Sholem. I've got a picture that I have to show you someday of, of us from that time where we're, we're it's this very seventies school photo and we're both very worried looking off camera at the same thing. You know, we went to nursery school together. Then we um, went, he moved to Montclair. I moved to Westchester County. We stayed friends and then we we just would spend a lot of summers together, went to camp together. When I was 17 years old, Adam and I went to Europe together, just the two of us. He was my first roommate in New York City right after college. We just always stayed friends and, you know, to the point where it was like more like a brother than a than a friend. I think I'd like to think that I got Adam into hip hop very early and it's because I was kind of an early adopter with the hip hop thing. I got really into it in the 80s and and would bring him like, you know, tapes of, of hip hop. And we started, he indulged me and we started making raps when we were about 16. I would go over to his house and he would set up a little studio. My father had a DMX drum machine, which Adam thought was the coolest thing in the world. I should note that my dad, Michael Small, was a big film composer. Adam always credited my father with being the sort of 
first major influence in his life. You know, the fact that somebody was making a good living, making music for a living was very inspiring to Adam. He couldn't believe that you could just sit down and at the piano and, and somebody would pay you to do that. So he always kind of credited my father with, with um, getting him started in music. And my dad had all this equipment, the, this DMX drum machine, this DX7 Yamaha synthesizer. And so I would kind of steal it and bring it over to Adam's house or Adam would come over to my house and we would make songs together. And often I would scratch on the, on the records and uh, we did some raps. One was called Soft Kids, which was about sort of these, like we were just making fun of what we call like these soft rappers who like were always biting our rhymes and wasting our time. And we were roommates and him and Chris were playing. Um, this was, you know, in the early nineties, he and Chris Collingswood were playing gigs as um, the wallflowers and then later pinwheel. And I would go to all their shows and kind of get into their music and sort of support them and hope that they were going to make it. I mean, I always thought, you know, if Adam somehow wasn't a musician, which was sort of hard to imagine because it was so much a part of his life, he would have been like a great comedy writer or mm -hmm. stand up. Like he had the best timing, T timing, timing. He used to always make that joke, the Steve Martin joke <laughs> about timing. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, he, he was so funny. I mean, I, and I love that these comedians are coming out like Sarah Silverman and saying like, he's one of the funniest people I ever knew. It's such a sort of testament to how funny he was. One story that 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 he told at my wedding, which is just such a classic, it's it's sort of embarrassing. But we, I guess, when we were about nineteen, we were visiting our friend Jeremy. We were taking a plane to Colorado. At that point, we were just totally girl crazy, and I think there was two really cute girls in the back of the plane. The plane was sort of empty, and you know, we wanted to pick them up, and we couldn't think figure out what to do, and we were kind of chickening out. And then either me or Adam came up with the idea to pretend that we were in the band Breathe which was this very <laughs> hands to heaven, hands to heaven, hands to heaven, breathe, which was kind of a brilliant take because, you know, this was pre internet, pre YouTube, you, pre Google, you couldn't go and figure out what breathe looked like. Nobody knew really what breathe looked like. They just knew that song. And it was a really big song at the time. And so we were like, let's, let's pretend we're in breathe. So like we went back there and we kind of like somehow started a conversation with these girls who could not be less interested in us and at some point that, you know, there was, so we were talking about how like we were pretty tired because we'd been touring a lot. And they were like, oh, yeah, touring? Like, what do you do? And we said, oh, ah, we're just in a band. You, you might have heard of it. It's, uh, yeah, we, we got a few songs. And they're like, what, what kind of songs? And like, you know, we just casually like, I don't know, you know, Hands to Heaven, um, Breathe. <laughs> you might have seen it. And they were like, what? You guys are in Breathe? Now, meanwhile, like Breathe is like a bunch of British. Like we were so not in Breathe, right? I mean, Adam looks a little bit like the lead singer, <laughs> but we just totally had them going that we were in breathe. I don't, I don't think we had really thought it through that, you know, eventually they were going to figure this out and we got their phone numbers. And I think we ultimately chickened out in calling them and, and kind of hooking it up. But I just love that Adam was a pop star and breathe before he was a real pop star. And I just want to point out their follow-up single was don't tell me lies. <laughs> That's awesome. The fact that you know, that is kind of brilliant. I love that. Don't tell me lies. <laughs> I love Leave the Biker. I like his funny songs. You know, I love Leave the Biker. He's got his arm around every man's dream. Crumbs in his beard from the seafood special. Oh, can't you see my world is falling apart? Baby, please leave the biker. Leave the biker. Break his heart. Baby, please leave the biker. Leave the biker. Break his heart. You know, I guess it's cliche, but I do like Sink to the Bottom quite a bit. 
I always thought that song would be a bigger hit than it was. It really disappointed me. I just felt like Adam was so on to like the sort of grunge thing there. And it's kind of funny because it's kind of come back a bit. I feel like that song, I know they played it on the Marvelous Miss Maisel did a, they used yeah, they a used lot it. of things for that song. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no pun intended. Exactly. Um, so I love that one. I mean, I think with Adam, the thing that I just loved is how he was sort of like a people collector. Like he was so great at bringing different people together. And for a guy who is sometimes like a little bit curmudgeonly and, and, and can be like cynical about things, he was loved people and he loved like mixing people. And I, you know, when he would come out here from New York and visit and he would say, Hey, you want to go get some dinner? It'd always be like a last minute invitation. He's so funny about like, he would never warn you that he was coming to town. It would just be like a text, like, Hey, what you doing for dinner? I'm like, Adam, I have kids. Like I have a life, but like, and I would still go out because I love hanging out with Adam. It was so fun all the time, but it would be like, you know, you'd think you'd maybe show up at a restaurant. He'd be there alone, but no, there would be like, you'd show up and there would be this sort of hodgepodge of the most interesting people be like Rachel Bloom on one side of the table. And then the guy who wrote, you know, some yacht rock hit from 1972 on the other and like, you know, a lawyer and a old fan. I mean, just such an interesting group of people. I always really enjoyed it. And then Adam just had this way of always making you feel like you were the only one he was interested in at the party too. So you always felt like you got like good quality Adam time. It wasn't like he was just kind of like, you know, kind of invited you just to be there. Like he was really there and present with you. And just everybody was happy because Adam made people happy. I want to sink to the bottom with you. I want to sink to the bottom with you. The ocean is big and blue. I just want to sink to the bottom. Along with Jonathan, another childhood friend of Adam's was Jeremy Freeman. And not only did they grow up together, they ended up working together when they all got together along with Darcy and James Eha from Smashing Pumpkins and started a record label called Scratchy Records. These days, Jeremy lives in Japan, where Adam just visited him last November, and we caught up and discussed how he and Adam met. I'm incredibly unmusical. I couldn't, you know, keep up with Adam on a musical level. I liked music a lot, and I got a lot of cool stuff from my older sister that, you know, like, we thought were, you know, pretty cool. Like, my sister liked, I remember she liked The Grateful Dead, and she would always talk about new riders of the fucking sage and hot <laughs> fucking tuna, and that was supposed to be, like, we thought that was really cool. We used to sit around and, like, make up band names for hours, and my mom was a graphic designer and an artist, and she had tons of letters set in these, like, books that had, like, font names and stuff like that, so we had put all this stuff together and, like, design whole kind of cool logos, and we thought it was just super awesome. And, you know, we listened to certainly a, a lot of music and talked about, you know, music stuff, and it was always doing stuff, you know, whenever we were together. We had a, a horrifying worm hospital <laughs> when we were really little, where we basically cut worms in half and taped them back together. It was very serious. I don't know. We dresses twins. We did a, a lot of different stuff together. It was an age of where you, you did stuff. We were never kind of sitting around the house. We were always trying to fight off boredom by doing stuff. And also, like, playing basketball and sports-related things, although 
Adam was not really an athlete in any way. So how did Scratchy come about? What was the, what was the idea there? What was the vision? In early 90s, I had been working for this woman named Ruth Broza, whose husband was David Broza, who was like the Israeli Bruce Springsteen or something like that. So I'd go over to her, and Adam also knew her, and uh, through Annie O'Hean, because he had worked at Kathy Schenker and Associates, which was a music PR firm. Okay. And uh, Annie O'Hean uh, was another Israeli woman who, who worked there. And they were both kind of like big-breasted, sexy uh, women. And I think Adam and I both had crushes on Ruthie and Annie. So in any case, I was working for her. And he was signed to a record label called November Records. Mm-hmm. And I was getting really into Jamaican dancehall music at the time. And me and another friend of mine named Jay Stewart started compiling and putting together compilations, like dancehall compilations, licensing stuff from Jamaica. And uh, they actually started to sell well, but we weren't making any money. And uh, I ended up moving to Chicago at some point. And in Chicago, uh, Jay and I were like uh, kind of bemoaning the fact that these people had ripped us off. So we were trying to figure out ways to put together our own label. So I kind of put it all together and we were going to do dancehall stuff. And then Darcy and James Eha heard about that. I was putting this label together and they said, listen, we, we really have been interested in doing this as well. Can we join up in this record label? Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up getting, uh, I think a $50,000 loan and started it up and asked Adam to be a part of it as well. So the partners were me. I was the president, Adam, Jamie Stewart, Darcy, and and James. Our idea was just that we did good music. It didn't matter about genre. We did like reggae stuff. We had, you know, Darcy and James brought a bunch of kind of, I don't know, this band Full Fledge, which were kind of like rock and roll. We had a lot of bands, actually. We put out a lot of releases. We put out Mike Ladd record and Esther Ballant record. And actually, Fountains of Wayne records were all, if you look at the records, they were all on Scratchy. I was just putting out everything, you know, uh, seven-inch stuff and pressing all the stuff up. And I had no fucking idea what I was doing at all. But I had a lot of energy and I was good at getting a lot of publicity for us. But we needed more money and we wanted to sell the label, get a distribution deal or something. At some point, I got David Geffen's personal number because I basically ripped off like someone's Rolodex uh, that I managed to sneak a peek into while they were out of the room. I remember I called the secretary and I was, uh, and they're like, Mr. Geffen or something. And I said, Oh, I'm just calling him back. I don't know why he called. And, uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, and I was like, this is Jeremy Freeman? I have no clue. David Geffen? And it, apparently it was some super secret number, so they put me through to him, and I just pitched him the label, and they put it together. And then Adam and I went to L.A., and that's when I first heard the Fountains of Wayne stuff. And I was thought it was, you know, well, I was like, wow, this is great. We went and pitched all these labels and played the Fountains of Wayne stuff. That was sort of funny because at the time, Adam was signed to Ivy, so we, we knew that he couldn't, uh, actually signed to anyone else but Atlantic in some way because Ivy was signed to, I forgot what their name was, Push Records, something like that, which was, yeah, yeah. it was an affiliate of Atlantic. Right. And so Adam was signed as an Atlantic artist. And we knew that if he had actually signed to anyone else, it would have been like 
kind of a big major lawsuit or, you know, different stuff would happen. But it it was a good way to kind of leverage stuff with Atlantic when they finally did the deal. And actually, Adam was, uh, you know, very, very loyal to both the people that had signed him at Atlantic and also to Ivy, because at a certain point, we all got flown to England, me, Adam, and Chris Collins, (laughs) when I had no money to my name. I I didn't have a, I remember because I didn't have enough money for a pack of cigarettes suddenly we're like a limo was driving us all around and i i just remember like being in the car and telling the guy like hey you know i feel really bad but i can't tip you you know like you're driving me around in this car and i i have no money and he was like don't worry the my last client like last week was the sultan of brunei and he tipped me two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for three days <laughs> i was <Jeez>. like okay <laughs> no problem can I borrow some money for a cigarette? <laughs> uh, but uh, when we were there, Virgin Records kind of said, like, we can take care of Atlantic. We'll figure this out. Mm-hmm. And Adam was like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to cause that problem. He, he truly, when it came to business stuff, I think he actually found it offensive when people wanted to turn that into a personal issue. He had a pretty clear-eyed view of uh, other people's venal behavior. And it didn't seem to shock him at all, you know, uh, his own included. I think he always expected that you should understand those things and then move on very quickly. The nicest memories and I, since I moved, you know, I've been here and uh, in Japan. And uh, last summer, I have a house in Prince Edward Island, Canada. And Adam came up, and so it was just it was just Adam and I. It was a very nice time of just being he and I, like without girlfriends and wives and other people it was just a great three days i know that's not a very specific memory or anything but it's it's a little hard for me right now thinking of of such specific memories like one thing definitely that's been hard with all this stuff in some ways i mean obviously him dying has been hard but then also like the death of someone who's a public figure who was never a public figure, like somehow it, it makes things, you know, and having no funeral or anything, it kind of makes everything sort of like you start doubting your own reality. It, it's not been super easy, this whole thing. I think that Adam is like the most brilliant musical person I've ever met. I'm, I mean, I remember even when we were young, you know, we had somewhat diverging musical tastes. Like I always hated prefab sprout i couldn't believe (laughs) how awful that was and he was not a fan of minor threat and devo and joe jackson and oingo boingo i remember like him later saying like that it wasn't a surprise that mark mothersbaugh and danny elfman would become you know like film composers and everything like that that and he had identified that from very early on and with his music, I remember hearing the Fountains of Wayne stuff, the first four songs, I think it was Sink to the Bottom, Radiation Vibe, and maybe Leave the Bike or something like that. And kind of laughing and being like, wow, this is like the big book of rock tricks. Like you've pulled out every kind of like tricky <laughs> element in here. I loved a lot of those songs and I loved Denise. I appreciated it a lot for its trickery and cleverness. And, and whenever I hear, you know, his songs, I'm always like, God, these are great, you know. You know, as a musician, as a musical person, Adam, you know, was never someone who he never played himself as like an alternative guy. 
He never played himself as like, you know, being like the alternative musician or anything. He had aspirations for success, but he never took that step into purely selling out, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I always like used to tease him. All your songs are just a little too smart to ever break into the top 10. Like at some point, someone listens to all your songs and they're like, wait a second, this guy is smarter than me. <laughs> and something about it will always annoy people. And specifically like that song, Denise. Anyone else would have made this song and would have made it stupider and it would have been a huge hit. That song I always thought led directly to Stacy's mom. Mm-hmm. And uh and then Stacy's mom, I was like, you almost got it. You almost made it just that stupid, but you couldn't quite do it. It still had like this edge of cleverness and wit to it and references that just went a little bit over people's heads. You know, there is a song that's my you know, favorite Adam song. It's a song that hasn't been recorded, but it, it was uh, a song that he did for the Bedwetter play. It's a song called I Don't Know This Person or something like that. And in the play, Tara's older sister sings about being embarrassed by her family. The chorus is, I don't know this person. And she's talking about Sarah. And it was a line like, it was so well heard about Sadie about Adam's daughter. I think Adam always had a certain depth of empathy for other people. And I think that there's a sweetness in all those fountains of Wayne's songs about other people understanding these kind of small human things. But this took that to another level. And it was really listening in terms of an ear to his daughter and and an appreciation for her humor that totally came out in the song and it was so real. I just found it very personal and very exacting with his kind of ear and also very, very funny. And it just profoundly showed a love that he had for his daughter. Adam's foray into the music industry started doing commercials. Who did he meet that got him into that? I think a significant person in his uh, personal and professional life has to be Stephen Gold. They met, as you'll hear, and they started doing music together for commercials, for uh, TV as well. And uh, Stephen can explain it better than I can. I was running a little jingle company, or you call it a jingle house. It was on 22nd Street. And um, a friend of mine introduced me to Adam saying that you got to meet this guy. I don't know what he could do for you, but he's in music. You're in music. They didn't know the difference between like rock and roll and TV and jingle. They just said, well, this guy's a great musician. We set up an appointment. He showed up to my studio. He was, he was very impressed because I had a receptionist and two studios. And this was back in the day, like 93, 92, 93. And uh, he was coming to kind of expand his stuff. He was already playing with two different bands. And he even did a, like a local commercial, but he wanted, to, he wanted to get into like the, the jingle or whatever the business was. But he also brought in um, his friend who introduced us is David Barkatz. And he actually brought a TV show that 
they were developing, he, uh, David was developing with John Leguizamo and he, he goes like, well, you're in TV. I did, I did a couple of TV shows. You're, so why don't we work on this together? Because he was kind of insecure to get totally into the TV without knowing the technical side of it or whatever. And uh, we ended up working on, um, on that Fox TV show, House of Buggin'. And that brought us to do other sketch shows like the Dana Carvey show. Yeah, and then we just, just started working together. And 28 years later... You know, we've been working for 28 years, like very closely. And the same thing with this long career in kind of a work for hire where there's a concept, including that thing you do, where mm -hmm. there's a concept, a lyrical concept or something or something in the script or a song slot within a TV show. And it was he took everything as a, a challenge where if he didn't know the show, he would sit there and watch four seasons to mm -hmm. get the feel of the characters. So he really put everything into every single assignment as a, a creative challenge. And he always killed it, killed it every time. He once told me he loves writing to assignment. And that stuck with me because I thought that was probably antithetical to how the songwriting process is for a lot of people. Like, oh, I, it's what? unnatural. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. But if you told him, hey, I've got this thing. Uh, I, it's got to be two minutes and 37 seconds. And uh, I want it to sound like the 80s. He'd, like, he'd rub his hands together like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and yet a lot of the, the songs with the band stuff, which is a whole, this is something I, I'm really not involved with. It were inspirations because of a, a lyrical concept or, or a, uh, a nostalgic thing. And that would not be on assignment yet he considered an album delivery as a deadline, even though you'd, you'd see Fountains of Wayne's sometimes had like long periods of time where they, they weren't uh, putting out albums, but he still said, let's make a deadline. And once the deadline was there, mm -hmm. then everybody stepped in and everybody, you know, became creative, but being creative on demand is a really, really tough thing. I've done it a few times and it's very stressful and there's, there are air dates and there are, budgets and it's just a stressful thing he just it was second nature the way he took on those kind of assignments our friend and working thing was very very overlapping we would go on vacations we would you know we would go on vacations at, on islands uh for christmas and new year's for a while he invited me to his family uh and then we we got our own thing going on with friends and he was always so um, enthusiastic about setting it up because everybody was too lazy to look at villas, to look at hotels, to look at destinations. And then once we got there, he takes the crowd and goes like, let's get out of here. We've been here for a day. We've been here for six hours in the same place. And it was like, but this place is beautiful and we're in the pool. We have all the food. Why leave? And he goes, because there's a place on the other side of the island that's just so incredible. And there's like a little restaurant there and it's supposed to be really vibey and nobody knows about it. He would always like try to find the hidden gems of, yeah. of the vacation. It's so amazing, the circle of people that loved him and his friends. But he just, I thought he was a little bit of a chameleon where mm -hmm. he would mold the conversation and mold the friendship to whoever he was either talking to privately or if it was a group, he would feel out the group and be a chameleon and be the funniest guy in the room. And we had competitions. Like sometimes he would make a, a great joke, which I did not think of, but I would say it louder and get the laugh. He goes, I just, I just said that. You're just saying it louder. I go, yeah, well, you should have said it louder. If he said, I'm going through a little problem in my life, here's this 
this uh, friend problem, this argument we're having. And he would always chime in and be the most logical in the group. He took his emotions down, even though he was very, he was a feeling person. How could he be such an amazing musician and a great creative if he wasn't like a feeling person? But he would put feelings aside and zoom out and then give people really good advice on their problems of their lives. So he was very giving in that way. Yeah, he was oftentimes the, the grown up in the room. And Damn it, you're right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. We're in the room together bickering about some production thing or some creative thing. And then I finally get out of there. And this is like three days of, in a row. Then he goes like, well, I don't know if you want to have a drink, but uh, I'm going to be in your neighborhood. So it would just, and I'd be like, mm, I just, we just, just spent three days like in a room with, with music. And, and then now at this point, it's, so, it's just so, I, I feel so bad that I kind of only took him took him up on the social opportunities maybe 20% of the time. And I should have taken it 80% of the time because I know that every time I'm with him, I learn from him something different, you know, and I just feel regretful about that. So he would do the demo sometimes and, and he would sing it himself, but sometimes he was amazing at the singing part and his stuff became the final. So the same thing with when we did uh, ambiguously gay du duo, we sang it as a demo Right. And we just tried to be that character. <laughs> and then we go, now we got to hire real singers. So we hired real singers. We recorded it. And Robert Smigel said, I really like the demo much better. I mean, the demo sounds more authentic. So we, and it was me and Adam singing it. So that was cool. <laughs> That's great. All day I get bacon. Not just when I awaken. Think I don't get bacon. You must be mistaken. All you dogs be hating. Females tails be shaking. To my owner that I want it now ain't in a waiting. Them up trees so weak. Those other snacks are so whack. All day I get bacon. Y'all just bake for table scraps. And I ain't breaking no sweat. Bake is just what I get. So Stephen and Adam were doing these little commercials, as you heard in the uh, Purina spot, which he was particularly proud of. And eventually they meet Robert Smigel, who is a, a longtime writer on Saturday Night Live. And he was doing the TV Funhouse segments on SNL and tapped Adam and Stephen to write some songs. And I had a really nice chat with Robert about their experience. Adam and I met when I was hiring staff for the short-lived Dana Carvey sketch variety show on ABC in 1996. We, we wanted to do something original in prime time with sketch comedy. And uh, for anybody who's heard anything about the show, they know it was a little too original to follow home improvement oh, yeah. at 930. But, but Adam and Stephen Gold, his partner, were um, two guys that we'd heard of. They had worked on House of Buggin'. Which was a John Leguizamo sketch show. And I don't really know how they were referred to us, but I know Stephen just cobbled together uh, a demo tape off of their VHSs of the show. And we thought it was pretty good. And, and that was it. We just, we just went for it. We hired them and they did an amazing job. They, um, this is something I didn't know. They would sometimes both write material and sort of compete. They wouldn't tell us who wrote what, you know. Apparently, I always thought Adam wrote the theme song to the Dana Carvey show, but it was Stephen Gold who wrote it. 
Like, apparently we chose Steven's version. Adam wrote a lot of amazing stuff for us, though. And we started the cartoons on the Dana Carvey show, Ambiguously Gay Duo. And then and then I moved on to Saturday Night Live when the Carvey show fell apart and decided to do more cartoons. And, and I brought those guys along with me. So they worked with me for many years. And uh, every now and then I'd have an idea for a song. Sometimes I'd sing it into a tape recorder and it would be fine as is. But many, many times they would just turn it into something really good, like uh, all the time. Uh, the ex-presidents used to be a cartoon I did where they were all hit by radiation at a golf tournament, struck by lightning or something. I don't remember, but they all had superpowers. And then at the end, they would all sing like the Archies, or Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids, you know, whatever lesson they learned from the episode, even though they were superheroes, they would all sing. And those guys would always make those songs really great and funny. And then I did a Comedy Central show with them called TV Funhouse. And that had a lot of music in it, a lot of new cartoons with theme songs <laughs> and scoring. And um, he worked on a lot of projects with me over the years. For someone that talented, he was incredibly low-key and modest and chill. Even though he was incredibly hardworking and, you know, his mind was racing with ideas all the time, but he was he still had this really easygoing energy that made him a pleasure to work with all the time. He was such an easy guy to talk to and an easy guy to hang out with and an easy guy to work with. Like I said, he got pretty busy and Steven handled most of my cartoons toward the second half of my run there. But then I started doing this variety special that was a benefit for autism schools and services called Night of Too Many Stars. And I did it first on NBC and then I did a bunch of them on Comedy Central. And now it's on HBO and Adam would always come back and, and help with those with Steven. And um, there are songs that they, you know wrote the music for that were just so great. You know, the show never really gets the uh, ratings that some of the other things Adam's been able to work on, like the Tonys. Not that the Tonys are a ratings juggernaut either, but Night of Too Many Stars would have killed for the Tonys ratings, sadly. You know, we did a sketch, we did a song where Jack Black, I, I, you know, I feel like posting these, they're, they're so funny. Jack Black sang a song about, opened the show with a song called Autism's Night to Shine, and he was basically dissing every other cause on the planet. And then another year, they wrote an opening number about how um, the world needs stars to take to solve all the world's problems. You know, celebrities are the answer. And it must have had 20 celebrities in that one. Everyone from Matthew Broderick to Susan Sarandon to Rosie O'Donnell. And, you know, those guys put it together. And my favorite was one we did, I think it was in 2010, where Steve... Carell and Stephen Colbert came on and uh, the premise was they told Jon Stewart that after the last one in 2008, we had a great idea that we would write a novelty song for the next one and it's going to really bring the house down. And John's like, well, when did you write it? Uh, right after the last one in 2008. And so the, the whole song was about Sully Sullenberger and <laughs> it was already like way too late, uh, but they just committed the hell out of it. And, and, it was a really funny idea, and it was one of those where I tried to sing it into a tape recorder, and I just could not get a handle on a melody that was appealing. And these guys, just uh, Adam and Steven, just uh, really killed it. And we put it on iTunes afterward and made more money. I've always been drawn to those kinds of artists who are just incredibly nerdy about the details. You know, I used to be just a sketch writer, 
at SNL, but when I when I switched over to cartoons, it was great because animators are that way too. They're just like, yeah, no, I get it. You want it to be that Yogi Bear walk, you know? Right. It's got to be. They're like so specific about getting it right, and that's how Adam was about music. And yes, he had a library of knowledge and just endless ability to capture any genre we wanted and we had so much fun and 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 then over the years we just would stay in touch all the time and talk about crazy ideas that we never got we did some things like he would call me up and be like hey you uh there's a kenny rogers uh tribute you want to help write a song (laughs) it was some i i don't even remember some song it was all beard related I'm sure Kenny Rogers was completely baffled by it, but they did it anyway. And then there was a time where the three of us were talking about, you know how the Radio City Christmas Spectacular, we wanted to do a Hanukkah one, not for Radio City, but but, but wanted to mount it at a theater, you know, and we had a million ideas for that. Is there what, a yeah. favorite Adam song that sticks out for you that you really particularly like? Oh, there's so many, but I, I, I mean, from Fountains of Wayne, I, I, I it's probably a common choice, but I, I, I love the song Hackensack. It's just so beautiful and, and funny and sad all at once. There's a reason everybody picks it, you know? Yeah, oh, so it is a common one, yeah. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> it's <laughs> okay. a pedestrian choice. But, it's, uh, it's the choice, I mean. It really is, especially for us dumpy old guys, I guess. <laughs> Sentimental, doughy. Have you ever seen the Katy Perry cover? I have seen the Katy Perry cover. So there you go. It, it can affect beautiful 25-year-old women as well. Exactly. Not just, not just middle-aged doughboys like myself. I mean, you know, what we spoke about last night, just the frustration of you want to pay tribute, but you can't get it out of your head that, like, why, why is this happening? This doesn't make sense, you know? Young man in his early 50s with daughters, and uh, you can't help but be frustrated and angry at the same time, knowing, knowing where we are with, uh, how, how we responded to this. And I don't want to get political or clouded up with that, but it's hard to separate it in a way. Yeah. I know, especially if you knew the guy personally, or if you know anybody who's been affected by this, or if you read stories of like these heartbreaking stories of like this couple in New Jersey, I read about the other day that like tried to get tested for three days and got turned away. And then they're both gone now. You know what else I missed out on? I never got to go to his club and, you know, with the piano bar. Oh. I know. I know. I live in New Jersey and I, you know, I'm kind of a recluse and, uh, you know, I have my family and I, I don't even, I, I barely even heard about it, you know, and I know how much fun he must have had with that place. He loved Sid Gold's. I mean, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had his three go tos Joe Jackson, is she really going out with him? Uh, <laughs> Which, you know, I'm so tired of, but now I would pay anything to hear him sing it again. Uh, oh God, yeah. Devo Whip It, which, you know, imagine that. It was a fun time. And boy, he could hang like anybody else. He could be out till four in the morning and then be up at seven working. Yeah, especially at a place like that. You know. Yeah. One more song. I'll be here for you. 
How did David Barkatz come into the equation? So David Barkatz is actually the guy who introduced Adam to Stephen Gold. And they eventually started working with actor and comedian John Leguizamo on a stage show. And that eventually morphed into a TV series on Fox called House of Buggin'. So I spoke to David and he told us how it all came together. The thing about Adam was he was always kind of the same, which is one of the things that I know about him in the sense of when I think about any stories about Adam from college or moments from college, they are totally consistent with any stories or moments with Adam from, you know, a a month ago. (laughs) It was like he was as though he came kind of fully formed into the world with his um, wit and sarcasm and uh, sensibility. And, and it, it is always almost exactly the same. And I mean, that is the is a high compliment. The, from the first moment we met in college, we kind of bonded over being Jews in a very un-Jewish environment of Williams College from similar areas. I was from the suburbs of Philadelphia. He was from Jersey. So we'd listen to the same radio stations. We had sort of this, uh, a similar sensibility. So we immediately kind of connected. And, and um, early on freshman year, because Adam you know, was really like no one else up there. You could tell, like, at that time, arriving at college, most people either, you know, just listened to the radio or had cassette tapes. And I arrived at our dorm with um, boxes and boxes of vinyl. And Adam immediately (laughs) honed in on that and started combing through the vinyl. You know, and immediately I got sort of the yays or nays. You know, every here and there, there was an album I felt like I had to apologize for. But there was enough of a mix of uh, punk and new wave and classic rock and show tunes that it uh, met Adam's uh, approval. There are two things that, that come to mind. And, and one was, you know, remembering the specific moment where he pulled out my copy of Regatta de Blanc, uh, the police album, obviously. And it was incredibly well-worn, that blue cover. And it was really one where you could see the outline of the vinyl through it. And, and he took out the vinyl and it was all scratched up and clearly been played a lot. And Adam looked up at me with an incredibly... Uh, sincere and serious expression and said, uh, you haven't been listening to this enough. And um, it was, you know, it was, it, it was, you know, perfect Adam because he was, it was, uh, he was joking and serious. He totally meant that <laughs> this album should be, you should have not even had the original one that you bought when it came out. There should have been replacements. And of course, with an album like that, you should have been listening to it more. The other one was Stephen Sondheim's uh, company, Broadway soundtrack. <laughs> we kind of bonded over that. That was not, there weren't a lot of um, straight guys that were into punk rock that had that particular album in their collection. <laughs> and so we, Adam also, you know, is a huge fan. You know, it was, to me, it was a very special relationship because most of the people that I knew, my friends were, I was a rower and it was like kind of the crew team. Most of my time taken up doing that. But Adam and I always had this kind of artistic, I felt like artistic connection because of these shared things. And it meant a lot to me because at that period of my life, I had abandoned pretty much anything artistic. I wanted to do theater, but I couldn't do it because I was doing crew. The relationship with Adam was sort of a link 
to that sensibility. And, and so we always stayed tight. And then after we graduated, we just always stayed close and were in touch and would, you know, occasionally have, you know, meet for drinks and all. And so at one point I know Adam was looking for a job and it was before he'd had, this is like in 1992, 93. I don't know. Stephen probably mentioned when he first met him, but I knew Stephen through someone I was dating. I didn't know him that well. I just knew he had some company that he made a lot of money and wrote jingles. And I knew Adam needed a, a gig. You know, even at that time, I knew that Adam was the guy that you could say anything to and say, hey, come up with this kind of melody, come up with this style. So I was, uh, you know, so I called Adam, but I remember where I was standing in my apartment on, on second and B when I was getting the number for Adam of Steve Gold saying, here's this guy that's got this jingle company. And I felt a little bit like embarrassed because it was, it felt like it was like less than Adam, you know, wanting to be, do his own thing and being like, all right, it's a day job. It's a good day job. And at the time my day job was doing like PR. So I kind of felt badly that I wasn't writing theater. And it was interesting because that his relationship with Steve became a major factor. Then when I was first working on House of Buggin with John, we needed people to run the sound booth and we needed certain effects. And so I called um, Adam and Steve and so those guys came and, and we hired them, which was fairly hilarious because we're in a small performance art space on the Lower East Side and dealing with those acting and script stuff. And Steve and Adam were jammed into like really like a three foot by two foot, like little space where they were doing this stuff. And you could hear them all the time arguing about different <laughs> stuff and like the timing because the actors were doing different things and improving. They were, were trying to get things right. And in the back of there, you could always hear the two of them in the booth fighting and arguing. I always like look back that little kind of light they've got like right there in the glow up on their faces of them fighting, you know, the two little like Jews in the back in the sound booth fighting is like the Latino actors are trying to do their shit on stage. And that was way more interesting to me watching those guys, honestly, <laughs> the, the stuff that was happening because they, they were pretty much hysterical. Once they, we did the, start doing the TV series, that was a whole other level of sound design. Cause then it was like literally for the sketches, doing music, accompanying the sketches, live stuff, doing um, sound lights. It was, it was, it was great. There was actually one point where there was a sketch that we did about West side story, do like a parody of it. So in terms of like the Sondheim stuff, it felt like we'd come a little bit like full circle at that point. After that ran its course, we, Adam and I, whenever we, we kind of got together, we'd always talk about doing a musical together because of the sensibility and that our early, bonding over that this one time we were in my apartment and uh, listening again to company for mm. sort of inspiration and talking about it. And, and uh, you know, Adam, you know, picking up one of my kids sort of out of tune, little kids guitar. And so it's like playing like all these different versions of it with, you know, different, like he's doing like a Samba, uh, a Samba ladies who lunch and, uh, and another hundred people doing it with like a sort of a reggae bead. And then, um, going to and doing like the um being alive as, as like punk then going into like a sort of um esquivel it was like such a like you know that's such a perfect adam way of approaching everything, both kind of both funny and um sacrilegious and mastering it and having sort of honoring it at the same time for most of my friends that i've known for 35 years when you have a friend that's from when you were teenagers no matter how tight you stay, most of your relationship exists in the past. And even if you're still see each other, there's a lot of when we did that, when that happened, when we were that age. And with, with Adam, as you stated, um, I always felt like almost like we were like kids when we talked about this stuff, because it felt like there was something in the future that it was just always so 
sure that there we were going to hit on that musical that we were going to spend three years together just sort of going crazy with trying to like get it right and the closest we came was i i did a a play at labyrinth theater company some years back with ellen burston and there were some musical numbers in it adam did the music for that and uh i cherish a few of those i just recently found a uh one of a demo that adam sent me at like four in the morning we had rehearsal the next day of, of him doing one of the songs and it was pretty amusing especially because it was they were comedic and fairly explicit lyrics so it was um it was really great to hear his his voice doing that. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because it's so, I feel like there's so few artists in any field, literally, whether it's novelists or songwriters, that can be sincere and ironic at the same time. You know, usually one, one side wins and it's sort of a smirking attitude or it's too sincere, so it's sentimental in a bad way. But uh, Adam really had that unique talent of having total open-hearted, <laughs> open-hearted irony, which is a rare, rare thing for an artist. I love the fact that, like, Adam as a rock star, you know, is always wildly amusing to me. And as you know, his personality is much more like he was, a, you know, just a Jewish, a Jewish writer, like the guy that would be kind of behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So him also being a rock star was um, fantastic and hysterical. And um, the and so the idea of the juxtaposition of someone that was sort of a conventionally good father, and when I say that, I mean in the best sense possible, but being, as, as we know, many very artistic people tend to be shitty parents and they, the art tends to come first and all that sort of thing. And Adam was never, certainly was never precious about his ability and artistry, A, B, the role that his daughters had in his life and in his consciousness and as he acted as a person was so in no way similar or I should say was incredibly superior to most people I knew that were in any kind of music context or artistic context that it just kind of existed in that separate state, which I thought was another great quality of his. So while Adam is creating all this music for Broadway productions and television, he also has two bands going, Ivy and Fountains of Wayne, and they both get signed at the same time. Is that correct? It's crazy. A really formative figure is the A&R person for Atlantic and Seed Records at the time, Stephen Yeagowell. And Stephen signs both Ivy and Fountains of Wayne, and he has some great memories of that. I had been working at Atlantic Records and Atlantic had started a division called Seed Records, which was sort of, uh, I don't know, I guess kind of a a smaller alternative imprint uh, within Atlantic with a different staff of people. 
I was, uh, I think, the only one that sort of was halfway Atlantic and halfway seed. And I had signed an act at the time called Matter Rose, making a little bit of noise, was doing okay in England, um, becoming kind of a press band, a Lower East Side kind of indie style act. Uh, he was a fan of theirs and I guess knew about that when I, when I met him briefly. I'm, I'm not really sure, but I know he was definitely familiar with them. And he, he sent this music of some uh, friends that he was helping out, how, is how he put it at the time. Anyway, they turned into Ivy. And then through Ivy, obviously, I got to know Adam. And then he sent me four songs that ended up being the first four songs on the first Fountains of Wayne album. That's music that he was doing with Chris Collingwood. It was just the two of them initially. They had gone to college together. They remained friends. They had been in a bunch of acts together. And these songs were different than the songs that they had done previously. And as I said, it, it, we actually decided to keep those as the first four songs on Fountain's album on their debut. What was it like to have someone in two bands at the same time on the same label? What, was there any conflict or was, did it go smoothly? Because I know he's a workhorse. I mean, that's the thing. It, it wasn't a conflict at all. I, I, you know, Adam was just adept at doing many things at the same time. He was he was always a multitasker. So so being in two bands simultaneously, it wasn't a big deal for him. And and anyone who worked with Adam, if you worked with Adam, you were really a co-conspirator. He he had a lot of stuff going on. He had a lot of ideas, and he liked to surround himself with people who were like-minded and and up for doing things that were maybe a little a little different and a little unconventional. The songwriting, that's really what it comes down to. Adam was attracted to, in addition to being a great songwriter himself, he was attracted to other high-quality songwriters. So, you know, this is why he and Chris became friends. I mean, I'm sure there were other personal reasons as well, but but professionally, he, he was clearly attracted to Chris Collingwood because, you know, Chris is... Uh, just an excellent songwriter. This is the same with Ivy. It was, you know, he, he was just attracted to people who were, who were very talented. In addition to being an Ivy, Andy Chase and Adam had a uh, studio together. So they were partners in a, in a recording studio. They used to be called The Place and then they changed it to Stratosphere. And then uh, James Eha became a partner as well. And everyone always talks about, you know, his songwriting and his playing. Um, you know, multi-instrumentalist, you know, he plays drums on the first Fountains of Wayne album. Uh, obviously, he's a great bass player. Um, but he was clearly adept, very, very adept on the business side of things. He wrote his own press releases. He wrote his own bios. You know, he, he could lay out his own artwork, um, you know, came up with marketing ideas, video ideas. He... He did everything. He was uh, he was he was remarkable. He really had a strong vision. I don't know why this came to my head, but Adam was not above ever doing anything or you know doing work, making the call. You know, it's funny when we were when we were working Welcome Interstate Managers, and Stacy's mom was our our focus. I remember speaking to him at least. 10 times a day. You, you know, you know, we spoke all the time. Like I said, he had management, but he might as well have been the group's manager. Yeah. He, you know, he was, he was, as we discussed, just, you know, so involved. And we spoke on the phone all the time. We were in constant communication. I, I started thinking back to that time a little bit. And as often as we were talking and as, and as frequently as we were on the phone back then, 
I wouldn't be surprised if there were maybe half a dozen other people that he was talking to 10 times a day about, mm-hmm. about a whole variety of things. He, he just had so many things going on all the time. You, you know, again, this kind of multitasking thing that, that, that we're talking about. But I remember when we were shooting the Stacy's Mom video and the attention, as you can imagine, went to Rachel Hunter and how she was looking and then, and then the two kids in the video. Adam, I remember asking sort of like, okay, well, what's the band going to wear? And we discussed that they would be wearing, you know, kind of suits. Right. And, uh, and he's like, okay, all right, great. And he goes, can I take a look at the suits? Can we, can we try them on? And the suits were just sort of off the rack and kind of ill-fitting. And, and he's like, well, this is kind of, kind of big on me and kind of, str- you know, small on someone. And he's like, no, we'll, we'll take it in and we'll clip them in the back and it'll, it, it'll look okay. You know, kind of don't worry. He's like, I don't know. I, I just wish that we had some, like, some nicer suits that we could wear. And they're like, well, no, it, it'll be okay. He's like, can't we just get some suits from someplace? Like some, some like high-end suits. I believe we shot over the weekend. I think we shot um, in Granada Hills. So like we, we were deep in the valley, like doing a Saturday, Sunday shoot. And it's like, I, I don't really know where we're going to get these from. And, and he was he was kind of annoyed that like there was no one in production that was able to kind of kind of get some suits from. He was never mind. Never mind. I'll, I'll, he was he was all frustrated. So I'll just figure it out. I'll just figure it out. And he got into a car and drove into Hollywood which is, you know, not a quick trip. Right. But the truth is he drove into Hollywood. I don't know if he was making calls on the way there or what he did, but he ended up getting designer suits for the guys, for him and the band. Somehow over the weekend, he was able to drive in. I think it was uh, Agnes B. That's what it was. And I remember he just, he talked them into it. He was, wow. he was able to kind of convince them to lend him four suits for, uh, for him and the band. And he just, he got it done. Came it back with the suits. Doesn't surprise me one bit. You know, it's just, it's just sort of a very, again, if you know Adam, it's just, that's such a very typical thing that he would do. Like he cared. And, and absolutely cared. He was passionate. And, and as you know, was not one to easily take no for an answer. Now that Fountains of Wayne were a signed act, it was time to get a full band together. Brian Young came on board to play drums, and Jody Porter, an old friend of Chris and Adams, who was part of earlier incarnations of Fountains, came aboard as well. I spoke to Jody as he was putting the finishing touches on his upcoming solo project called Waterways. I had a band in London in the early 90s, and then I was like, I want to leave the UK. So we came back and we put out an ad in the Village Voice, and we found Adam, and he was in my band. Hmm. It was called The Bell Tower. It was really, honestly, the first time I've been challenged by anybody who was at least as good as me, if not better. Then that band didn't really take off because I don't think I wanted it to. Years later, around 1996, he gave me a phone call just as I was about to get a divorce. 
from someone who is also meticulously in the bell tower. I said, yeah, I'll do it. So I drove up to New York in my Acura Legend, a couple of guitars, and without my dog, which I left at my mother's house. And I joined the fucking Fountains of Wayne, simple as that. You, you had a past experience with Adam, and you said that he, he challenged you because he was really a, a musician-wise or attitude-wise or both? Not song-wise, because as Dominique Duran said, he had never even tried to write a song at that point. This is around, you know, like 1992 or something. Yeah. When Nirvana was on MTV and stuff like that. Um, if you want to rewind the clock. But no, as a bass player, just as some, a musician, hell yeah. I could tell there was something special about him from the get-go. Fountains actually came right out of the, you know, curtain with... You know, flying colors, really. Mm-hmm. Our first video, Radiation Vibe, it's like right at the end of 96, maybe, you know, early 97, was all over MTV, like sort of the, what was it called? M, you know, 120 Minutes and all mm-hmm. that. So, I mean, we, we started to think, oh, this is, this is starting to happen, but it didn't really start happening until the Grammys era, which was around 2003. Both him and Chris would bring in these campfire songs on an acoustic guitar that we all sort of put together in the studio, mm-hmm. you know. So Adam had the more um, substantial musical palette than any of the three of us did. Um, he didn't mind a bit of Broadway and show, you know, show tunes and stuff like that. I don't think Chris and I ever wanted to delve into that, you know, film and music kind of vibe or broadway vibe that he was quite happy to do and obviously he got really successful and really good at it and that's why i wish i had gotten involved in that but i just wanted to make indie rock you guys were doing really cool stuff and you were doing you were doing stuff on the side at the same time though right before and after uh, i'm about to do it again um any minute now it's produced by me and brian so you get 50 percent of some fountains there Awesome. So what, what, what's the project called? It's going to be called Waterways, mm-hmm. and it's all my songs, Jody Porter and the Berlin Waltz, which is a cast of characters that might have included Adam because, man, my last memory was hanging out with him at karaoke at his joint in New York, and he was really, you know, pressing me to hear the new record because Brian had talked it up or whatever, right? You know, he really was. He was like everybody's best friend. He was just so humorous. And the thing about me and Adam is when we weren't making records or playing tours and, and having to do sound checks or whatever, it's just like the music had, it was just gone. It's like it was on mute. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Those are some of the best times I remember just as a friend because we weren't trying to do anything, you know? It was just like two dudes hanging out or whoever else was around, I guess. And, uh, yeah, I'll miss uh, my birthday parties where he picked up the tab for 1200 bucks at Sammy's on the Lower East Side. I, I tried to put in on it. Nobody else seemed to want to do it. <laughs> but he picked up the tab, and he wouldn't let me pay for it because it was my fucking 40th birthday, you know? Uh, yeah. And he came to my 50th as well, which was one of the last few times I saw him. And uh, that was quite fun, too. We did Good Times, which I thought he did an amazing job with some other great songwriters. And then we did the Christmas album for you guys, which was really cool. 
And I'll tell you about that one. And I can tell you that Adam enjoyed this as much as I did. And we high-fived after. You you were there, I think. You were in the control room. So Peter, Buck, and Scott come in. Mm-hmm. And they come in. We already kind of know the song, but we've never quite learned it. And we got it down to three takes. And that yeah. was the last time I made a record with like, you know, four or five guys in a room. It just felt so old school and so good. I was like, why haven't we been doing this? And I think somebody somebody exclaimed, Pro Tools. <laughs> but what you hear on that Monkey's right, especially the album, uh, the record Christmas Party, that's just the five of us in a room. And I think we had to do it two or three times, and it was just a done deal. And then Mickey came in, obviously, and sang it great. But it was cool. I mean, I really enjoyed that. That was probably over the last 20 years of my career. I put that in quotes. The most fun session I've had and Adam, Mickey Dolans, Peter Buck, and Scott Mahay, you know, can't get much better than that. Another longtime friend of Adam's was Mike Viola. Mike and Adam met in the late 80s, as you'll hear, and Mike ended up becoming a very uh, well-accomplished Grammy-nominated producer, musician, songwriter, singer. We met when he was working on the Monkees Project with us, and you'll hear he was also the singer and guitarist of one of the most important songs in Adam's career, That Thing You Do. I was living in Boston in the 80s. I lived in Kenmore Square. I had an apartment there when it was affordable and and it was cool. Like there was the rat was still there, the rat skeller. Mm-hmm. And um a bunch of places you could just play. So I was playing around town in Boston. And um I'd play any night of the week, whoever would have me. I was playing in Beverly, which is near Salem. It's on the North Shore, you know, like on a Tuesday night or something. And I noticed this lanky kid and um, his girlfriend, you know, they just look cooler than everybody else in the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was Chris Collingwood and his girlfriend, Minnie, at the time. I was like, what do you, hey, man, what's up? And he had driven from, uh, from Western Mass. For some reason, he had got wind of my music and um, might have been a local radio station or something. I'm not sure. And I played a show in New York. And this, and no one was there. There was literally nobody there <laughs> except Adam. But, and he was wearing a gray trench coat, a woolen trench coat. And, you know, it was, it, it was very eighties, you know, very yeah. Mr. Mr. And I was just like, wow, who's that guy? And he had nothing but nice things to say. And he was so nice and so smart and cool and just like, 
and it turns out he's friends with that guy in Boston who came to see me play, you know? So those two guys really were like, you know, I met them just at the same time. And, um, and we, we became fast friends and we immediately started making music together. They gave me a demo tape that I probably still have. And the name of the band at the time was uh, Pinwheel. Yeah. And it was just Chris and Adam. But I quickly, I quickly joined the fray. Like we, we played a bunch of shows together and started hanging out at Adam's house in Montclair, his parents' house. He introduced me to some, some of his childhood friends, including Jeremy and Johnny and, and this, uh, this lovely young girl, um, Becky. And I was like, who are these really nice people that are so smart and cool and like just hanging out in this really rad house, you know, just completely different from my world, which was really um, blue collar, suburban, white knuckle kind of childhood. Um, mm -hmm. And so just meeting these people were like the parents were present and and there was like newspapers and magazines lying around and instruments. I was like, wow, it's just a real, real great environment for me to be in as a young man. And um, Adam like was, was really like, he just, he loved this raw thing I had. I was more of a, of a, a, a punk rocker in the sense that I would come at the music not knowing what I was doing and I'd just start fucking carving away at it, you know, fearlessly covered yeah. in blood and covered in guts, carving away at some stupid thing. And then I'd have something at the end of it. Whereas Adam and Chris were more, I guess you'd say more constructualists or something like they would, they would think about the architecture of it and plan it out. And it would be this beautiful thing that could stand on its own. I think that there was a real chemistry between those two schools of making art and making music. And also this fierce irony that um, that they both had. I think Adam Adam's sense of irony, at least back then, was a little gentler. I think of them as a two-headed beast, you know, like, because uh, they were really fierce, artistic, creative friends of mine, and we, we got really, really close and made a lot of, a lot of great music, and I always saw myself on the outside of everything that they were doing because they were, you know, in New York. Well, Chris was in Boston, but Adam was in New York and it just seemed like, you know, that's the ultimate place to be. If you, when you grow up in Boston, it was like, you know, uh, the minor leagues and New York was the, the big leagues. Not always. The time that I was playing in Boston, that certainly was the case. Yeah. We just played a lot of music together, man, and really didn't write anything together until years later. But it's funny because, like, in my mind, it's like a long time after that. But hmm. in reality, it was probably like three years after that. We were uh, living together in New York. Uh, my wife died, and Adam and Chris drove all the way from New York, New Jersey, um, to come to her ceremony and I was so happy to see them, man. And, um, it was just like, man, and I had to get the fuck out of Boston after that happened. Cause it was just, there's too many triggers and it was really depressing and I didn't know how to process it. And 
there were these two dudes and and when adam left my house my mom's house you know where the ceremony was he was like anytime you want to just come to new york man you can crash with me and i was like that's fucking great so i did and i i stayed with him for a little bit and he just opened his door he basically like you know all his friends he introduced me to all his friends and um and I uh, just met, and I, most of those people I still know to this day. When I moved to New York, I got a publishing deal kind of right away. And so he had a publishing deal, and, and there was this word was going out that they were looking for a song for a Tom Hanks movie. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was living with him, but I just moved out. I found my own little place. He was like, man, we got to do, because Adam just had that energy, like, dude, we have to do this. It's going to be great. Come on, it'll be great. I'm like, yeah. He's like, if anyone's got to do this, you need to do this. You know the Beatles, the Beatles surgically. I'm like, yeah. I don't know, man. I don't really want to do that. But Adam really wanted to do it, and so he did it anyway. And he, and I remember so vividly. It was like a Saturday morning. I lived in a basement apartment in a courtyard, and he, he either had the key or he knew how to get in. But he came in and he knocked on my door, and I was so hungover, and, I, and he was like. I wrote a couple songs. Can I play them for you? And he played me um, three songs. And I was like, yeah, the first one. <laughs> that one's really good. And he's like, want to record it? And I was like, nah, I just didn't want to do any of it. I was like, nah. He's like, come on, it'll be great. It'll be great. It'll be great. You know? And so me and Andy Chase and Adam went into a studio and we just busted it out really fast. We played everything and I sang everything and, uh, played this guitar lick being from boston i was a huge pixies fan you know so it's just a joey santiago lick off of one of their early records i just basically lifted the lick but he lifted it kind of from buddy holly so it seemed perfect that it would be in a frankenstein monster version Beatles song you know that i just like take all these parts and i added a bunch of substitute chord substitutions and a few melodic twists here and there and it was like this feels great. And then Andy did something to it. He made it sound, he made it sound old. Like mm-hmm. and it was, you know, and uh, we were recording on tape too, you know, yeah. it was not, not Pro Tools. Anyway, yeah. And we slapped the name on it. We were, we were recording a bunch of songs back then, me and him as Scientist Alexis. That was the name of, uh, that was the name of, it wasn't a band. It was just a moniker. Like, you know, it just seemed cooler than putting, his name or my name on it, you know what I mean? Or Andy's name. So right. it was just scientist Alexis and, um, mailed it in. And then he's, he called me at whenever it was. And he called me and he was just like, I, I think they want to use the song. And I was like, uh, cool. Have fun. <laughs> I don't want to do it. I just didn't want to do it, man. I was so reluctant to do it. Now, not because I was a slouch or anything like that. First of all, my wife just died. Right. I had zero interest in like lifting yeah. a finger to make any kind of like joyful music like that. Like I just didn't feel like it. You know, I just was in a bad place. But in his inimitable way, and he was just like, "Come on, man. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, you you got to do it." And then I said, "No." I said, "No, nah, I really don't want to do it." So apparently, they got other people to try and do it. They try to get somebody to play guitar, and and they try to get somebody to sing it. Then I get a call from Don was and uh, he's like, Hey, this is Don was, you know? And I was like, Oh shit, man, I'm a huge fan. I love that Bonnie Raitt record. And I love was not was holy shit. You know, 
and Don said, you know, we really want you to do this. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're calling because of that Tom Hanks movie. He's like, yeah. I was like, oh, man. I said, man, I don't really want to do that. And he's like, why? I said, eh, I'm from Boston, you know, and there was this really good local artist named John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. They were really good. And, and I used to see them at clubs when I was a teenager. And, I, and, you know, I thought they were really good. And then he did that movie and then it just ruined his career. And I, I just, I don't think I want that, you know? Um, not that I had a career to speak of yet. I had just signed a publishing deal and, you know, but uh, he said, no, it's, you should come to LA and um, I think you'll be really, really psyched. And so he's, you know, they mailed me the script. I didn't even open it. Mm -hmm. And I got on a plane, got f fucked up on the plane, landed in LA, got fucked up in LA, woke up, literally like dragged my ass to the studio and I did it in like two takes and then Don's like, you know, we rented your setup, your Vox amp and Gretsch and, you know, will you play guitar? I'm like, yeah, yeah. So I played all the guitars, you know, and it started to really sound good. And I was with a friend out there. He was a new friend and I just met him. He worked at Sony and Sony was thinking about signing me or something. Yeah, that's what it was. And he introduced me to... Um, to Liz Fair and Liz Fair was recording next door at the um, studio that I was recording at with Dawn was. And she's about my age and she's super sweet. And she's like, what are you doing over there? I was like, Oh, you got to come hear this song. And she came over and she, it blew her mind and she was so psyched. And, and so it seemed all, that that was a little bit of a tip off to me. Like, Oh, this, this might be really cool. Right. It, it took Liz Fair kind of go-go dancing to it to make me realize, oh, this, this isn't just some knockoff commercial thing. I think we made something really special here, you know? And I was just so reluctant the whole time. It's, that's to be totally honest with you. Um, but it was just, I was you know, a very damaged young man at that time, you know? So. So one thing I think Steve, Stephen told me, Stephen Gold, that um, you guys dubbed the original demo down to a cassette and submitted it that way. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. Did you dub it from a cassette to another cassette? To yes. A, yeah. Yes. To degenerate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and actually, and I think Andy did something to it. I can't remember what, but he did something to it to make it a little wobbly, mm -hmm. you know, so that it would sound like an old thing, you know. <laughs> the ingenuity at its best. Totally so. is. It totally is. And, and Andy is a great engineer. He, um, he did a lot of cool stuff throughout his whole career. I'm a big fan of his work. I look back on it like very fondly. Um, uh, I think uh, the whole the whole experience, you know, I wish I could have enjoyed the experience a little bit more. But I look back on it, you know, I, I just for me the the songs in the recordings, and, you know, and that movie's really really special too. So I, I, I love I love the whole thing. I'm, I'm really proud to be involved with it. He was really really generous person and. Mm -hmm. um, he was um, he was a connector, and yeah. I never knew what that was until I met him, and then he introduced me to other connectors and people that just wanted to network, not to get something out of you, but to because it, it just was like the life their life force. It fed their life force and thereby fed your life force. I really learned that from him. Um, like I said, being from Boston, blue collar, you know, Boston, it was like 
it was, you know, being in gangs, you know, you kept to yourself, you and your little crew, you know, or your band in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he, um, just a really open hearted, really generous person. You know, John, I, it's just so heartbreaking and you know, I wake up every day and I think about him. We had just gotten back together doing stuff actively. He had a night here in LA. He has that Sid Gold's room, request room. It's like a piano bar karaoke scene. And he had me play on one of the nights and it was just so much fun. And being around him, and he felt the same way. It was just like being around your energy. And he's like, I feel the same way. Just, just, it's just, we go good together, man. I was like, yeah, man, this is just so great. And it wasn't about like, let's start a band and let's take, you know, let's try this again or whatever. It wasn't that. It was more like, wow, just being together, doing our shit is really all we ever really wanted to do. So let's, that was in December. And, um, and then we played another show on Valentine's Day on February 14th of this year. And that's the last time I saw him. It was a very, very heavy, uh, tearful moment with him. But the tears were of love and tears of, we're getting old, we should appreciate each other and we should spend more time with each other doing the things we love together. And so, and I just was just so happy about that. and. We had a show booked for the next the next thing, but you know, of course, we didn't make it. So much to process from Adam's friends and co-workers in this episode. A lot of great insight into what kind of a guy he was and all the work he created and how creative he was. What do we have in the next episode, John? Yeah, so much more, Rich. I mean, uh, in the mid-90s, uh, early 2000s, Adam's career really just kind of kicks into overdrive. So we're going to hear from many people that worked with him then from Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Mickey Dolans from The Monkees, Dominique and Andy from Ivy, Jody Porter from Fountains of Wayne. We've also got Sam Hollander, who was a good friend of his, uh, is just a killer songwriter, plus uh, Anna Nordine and Rennie Lane from his last musical project, uh, a band called Fever High. Looking forward to it, folks. Make sure you tune in for the next episode of the Rhino Podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.